0: Back in 1661, England did a very unusual thing. Now, none of us were there to witness this unusual thing, but it was a unique thing in English history. England brought back the king. Now, that's not exactly true. They couldn't bring back the king that they'd had before. He was Charles I, and he had been beheaded in 1649. They couldn't bring him back. But they did bring back the monarchy. They crowned Charles II. And that ended a short and a unique time in England's history. After a decade or so without a king, England renewed the kingship. They'd been very eager to get rid of the monarchy in 1649, but they finally decided they couldn't do without it. England decided it needed a king. Now we might debate whether England really did need to renew the monarchy. We might debate what value the monarchy has had since it was restored. But I would suggest to you that the process England went through once in the 1600s is a process that God's people have to go through time after time. God is our king. But time after time, we rebel against his kingship. There's hardly a week goes by when we don't forget him, or defy him, or fail to trust him. So the life of God's people must be a life of continually renewing God's kingship in our lives, reaffirming again and again. That he is in charge of our lives. Now, I say all of that by way of introduction to our passage this morning. We are looking at 1 Samuel. And again and again, we can see ourselves in this book. As we follow the story of the Old Testament people of God, actually, we're learning about our own needs and our own mistakes. In fact, the New Testament tells us the Old Testament was not written primarily for Old Testament people. It was written for us. The Old Testament is here to teach and guide men and women in 2013. So the Old Testament is not some relic of the past that we just have by accident. It's not something we study because, well, it's stuck here in the front of our Bibles, and we should try and make some sort of sense of it. Now we study the Old Testament today because it was written for us today. We read these pages, and they reveal our own hearts to us. They also reveal the reality and the character of our God. So let's turn again to this word that was written for us. And our passage this morning is about renewing the kingship. We're going to pick up in chapter 11, verse 14. In the church Bible, that's page 281, or in the large print, 431. And in a moment, I'm going to read right through to chapter 12, verse 25. But before we read, let me remind you of the background to this passage. Israel has rebelled against God's kingship. They demanded a human king instead of God. And last week we saw Samuel presenting Israel with their new king. His name is Saul. And you may remember Saul's name means asked for. And the people were initially delighted with Saul. We saw that. They were delighted with him until God said, he's to be king under my authority. He's to be caretaker of my kingdom. Well, that soured things for Israel. That wasn't what they wanted. And so we were told they despised their new king. But then we saw God use Saul as his instrument to deliver Israel. Saul led the army of Israel against a king called Nahash the Ammonite. And he won a great victory against Nahash. And that's the point where we pick up this morning. The victory has just been won. And chapter 11 verse 14 tells us this. Then Samuel said to the people, come, come. Let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbaal, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. And he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. And you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day, the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. Because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. This is God's word. Samuel's opening words are, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. And right at the very start, we have to ask, What exactly is Samuel talking about? We might think he's talking about Saul's kingship. But it is not correct to say that Saul's kingship is being renewed here. In chapter 10, Saul was presented to the people, then he proved himself in battle, and now in chapter 11, verse 15, he is made king. It's almost like he's come through a probation period, and now his kingship is being made official. So the kingship that is being renewed here is not Saul's, it's God's. And that's borne out by the location Samuel chooses for this event. He takes the people back to Gilgal. Now, the name Gilgal may not mean anything at all to us. But it's a significant place for Israel. Whenever the Israelites first entered the land of Canaan, they camped at Gilgal. And under the leadership of Joshua at that time, they held a big ceremony. They set up a large monument of stones, and all the men of Israel were circumcised. At Gilgal, Israel commemorated and celebrated God's kingship. And now, many years later, it's significant that Samuel takes Israel back to Gilgal. It's time to renew their allegiance to God, their king. That's the kingship our passage is concerned about. You'll notice Saul fades into the background here at Gilgal. Yes, he is crowned as part of the ceremony, but this is first and foremost about God's people and their divine king. Samuel leads Israel through this renewal of the kingship. And he starts by proving the people are condemned by the faithfulness of God. In the Bible, we're often confronted with the holiness of God, the fact that he is absolutely pure, he's absolutely separate from sin, and in the face of God's holiness, our own impurity and unholiness becomes very obvious. But here, the focus is different. Here, it's God's faithfulness that shows up the people's faithlessness. Samuel presents this as a legal trial. Apparently, we're soon going to have trials on TV in this country. You may have heard that in the news last week. Well, here, we get to see God's people on trial. And first of all, Samuel gives proof of God's faithfulness. The NIV has given this a heading which says Samuel's farewell speech. But actually, that's not accurate. Samuel will do plenty more before he says farewell to Israel. Certainly, his role is going to change after this. But he will be active for a good bit longer in Israel. What Samuel is doing here is not saying farewell. He's pointing to his own life as evidence of God's faithfulness to Israel. When we started looking at 1 Samuel, we noticed it was a dark time to be alive. It was like the Wild West. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But here, Samuel points to himself as proof of God's faithfulness. In Israel's dark time, maybe one of its darkest ever times, God provided the leadership that Israel needed. And so in chapter 12, verse 3, Samuel says, Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. That's Saul in this case. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. The point is, by vindicating Samuel, the people are condemning themselves. God had given them a good leader. But when Samuel got old, and when his sons proved to be unsuitable as leaders, Israel hadn't trusted God to raise up another good leader. They had decided how Samuel should be replaced. They demanded a king such as all the other nations have. And here, God's faithfulness highlights Israel's faithlessness. Samuel goes on, and then he goes further back into Israel's history. He points to a pattern of God's faithfulness. This isn't just about Samuel. Back in chapter three, in verse 3, Samuel said, Here I stand. Now in verse 7 he says, Now then, stand here because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Jacob is another name for Israel. His 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. But notice what happened here. There was a need when Israel was down in Egypt. The Israelites were in slavery. And in their need, they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent what they needed. Moses and Aaron, leaders who delivered Israel, Samuel goes on, again and again, Israel was in difficulty, mostly due to their own sin. And the pattern was, in their need, they cried out to the Lord and he sent what they needed. Samuel sums it up at the end of verse 11. After listing some more of the leaders God raised up, Samuel says, he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. Israel's history is a history of God's faithfulness. The evidence shows his love and his faithfulness have never failed. And in the light of God's perfect faithfulness, how does Israel measure up? Well, look at verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, You said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. You might recognize the name Nahash. He was the guy mentioned at the beginning of chapter 11. He put the Israelite city of Jabesh-Gilead under siege. He threatened to gouge their eyes out. But God used Saul to defeat Nahash. And yet we might wonder how that fits with what Samuel says here. He says it was fear of Nahash that prompted Israel to ask for a king. But you may remember they asked for a king back in chapter 8. We didn't meet Nahash until chapter 11. Well, we noticed last week Nahash's attack on Jabesh was not a one-off. Apparently he was on a bit of a rampage. It seems that Jabesh was one in a long line of cities that Nahash hit. The point is, he was probably already on his binge of terror back before chapter 8. So it was partly panic about Nahash that caused Israel to demand the king like all the other nations. But here in verse 12, Samuel reminds them, the Lord your God was your king. Hadn't he always supplied what you needed? Hadn't he always raised up the leaders you needed? But when Nahash came along, instead of crying to the Lord for help, you refused to trust him. And you demanded a human king. In the light of God's faithfulness, Israel is condemned for her faithlessness. And so are we. Now it's true, we are not faced with an Ammonite king trying to gouge our eyes out. Our trust in God is not regularly tested in such dramatic ways. But every day our trust is tested in a dozen smaller ways quieter ways? Will we trust God to fulfill us? Or will we give in to sexual temptation? Will we look for fulfillment there instead? Will we trust God to provide for us financially? Or will we go into a faithless panic? Will we trust God's promise that the future glory He has for us is better than any glory here on earth? Will we trust that this new unforeseen situation in our lives, whatever it is, will we trust that it's not new and unforeseen to God? Or will we get irritable and angry? because things aren't going according to our plans. It's worth asking, in those situations, who are we actually angry with? We might kick the cat. We might shout at our kids. But that's not who we're really angry at. Whether we will admit it or not, in those situations, our anger is actually against God. He's the one in charge of the world. He's the one who's not doing what we wanted him to do. When we stomp around in a temper, we are denying God's faithfulness. Every day, our trust in God is tested in a load of little ways. And in the light of his absolute faithfulness, we are condemned. Every one of us. It doesn't take anything nearly as dramatic as an eye-gouging Ammonite. Twenty minutes in a traffic jam is enough to prove us guilty. So yes, Samuel is highlighting Israel's guilt and need for repentance. But the guilty verdict lands on us too. Well, maybe some of the crowd at Gilgal aren't taking Samuel seriously. Maybe some of them are fed up with Samuel. Who does this guy think he is? Who made him judge and jury over us? Maybe some of them are thinking that way. And maybe that explains what happens next. Samuel has delivered the guilty verdict on Israel. And now God himself confirms that verdict. Look at verse 16. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. And you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Verse 17 mentions this is the time of wheat harvest. That happened in May and June. And in case you're like me and your meteorology isn't very good, it doesn't rain in the dry season. So if there is thunder and rain on this day at Gilgal, Israel will know it's not just thunder and rain. It is God's confirmation of Samuel's guilty verdict. Verse 18, Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. We might wonder if this is a bit heavy-handed of God. We might wonder if it's a bit primitive of God to scare these people into submission. That's basically what he has just done. And for that matter, we might wonder the same thing about Jesus. Why did Jesus talk about hell so much? For that matter, why did Paul go on about God's wrath so much? There's a very good reason why. Unless you and I get a glimpse of our sin from God's perspective, we will never take it seriously. Certainly, there's a place for subtle arguments. There's a place for winsome, lighthearted presentations. But sooner or later... You and I need to sense the holy anger of God. And we need to tremble. We need to wake up to how our sin looks in the eyes of God. How it smells in the nostrils of God. Sooner or later, I need to realize my lack of trust in God is not a little thing. It is faithlessness. And it's worthy of hell. Our God is unfailingly faithful. And we stand condemned by the faithfulness of God. But, that's not the end of the story. As the Israelites stand here with their knees knocking together, Samuel assures them they are claimed by the grace of God. The first thing Israel does at this point is to acknowledge their guilt. They cry for mercy. In verse 19, the people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. And then Samuel says a curious thing to the people in verse 20. Do not be afraid. Right, do not be afraid. God has just roared at them from the sky. How can they not be afraid? And what Samuel says next doesn't really seem very encouraging. Verse 20. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. What Samuel is saying is, It's important that you've sensed the heat of God's anger at your sin. It's good that you've asked for mercy. Now it's equally important not to lie around wallowing in your guilt. Get up, start over, and go forward in trust and obedience. What Samuel is saying is good, it's true. But it's not going to take away Israel's fear. Why? Because they have failed so many times before. Remember all the evidence that's just been laid out for them. And they know it in their own hearts. For every example of God's faithfulness, their own faithlessness stands out all the more. They will probably fall flat on their face again. Maybe not this day, maybe not this week, but at some point. So how then can they not be afraid? Well, The answer is in verse 22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. These people are great sinners and they will almost certainly sin again. But Israel's sin is not the deciding factor here. God's grace to Israel is the deciding factor. Long before this, God chose a man called Abraham. He promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And later, when he brought Abraham's descendants out of slavery in Egypt, at that point, God confirmed his promise to Abraham. Out of all the nations, he chose Israel as his treasured possession. God has put his good name on the line. He will not cast his people aside. So as these men and women stand at Gilgal, they are being reminded that their future does not depend on their performance. Their future rests on the saving grace of God. They are his people, and he will not let them go. In spite of their sin and rebellion and faithlessness, they are claimed by the grace of God. God's grace is like the hub at the center of a wheel. Everything else rests on it, and everything else revolves around it. Look what Samuel says next. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. In his grace, God provides his people with someone who will intercede on their behalf. He provides someone who will teach them the way of obedience. And now, at this point, the people are ready to see where their obedience fits into the picture. Their obedience has been mentioned already back in verses 14 and 15. It's been mentioned in verses 20 and 21. And now it appears again in verse 24. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. What is it that enables God's people to serve him faithfully? What enables us to serve him without fear? It's the knowledge of what he has done for us. As we consider what great things he has done for us, we will serve him faithfully with all our hearts. And in our case, we remember that he called us while we were still his enemies, while we were far away from him. He showed us the truth about Jesus. He enabled us to put our trust in Jesus. He made us his own people, sons and daughters. We are claimed by God's grace. And that is what moves us then to serve him faithfully. God's grace is not an excuse to persist in doing evil. Samuel makes that very clear in verse 25. And that's why God's people are called to a life of continual repentance. Every day we're to be turning away from the useless idols that we seem to get tangled up in all the time. Every day we're to be turning back to our true king, renewing our trust in him. And as we do that, we know that our future does not rest on our great performance. Our future rests on God's great grace. In his grace, he made us his own. And by his grace, he will keep us. I would guess those of us who call ourselves Christians this morning are going to fall roughly into two groups. There will be those of us here who to one degree or another are complacent about our faithlessness. We're not really troubled by it. We're pretty at peace with it. That's one group. Then there will be those among us who to one degree or another are living under the weight of our faithlessness. We have sensed our failure, and we're stuck in a kind of gloom about it. Two groups, the complacent and the despondent. And the message of our passage is that whichever group you're in, it's time to renew the kingship. Even this past week, there's enough evidence to condemn each of us as unfaithful to our king. We have no reason to be complacent about our faithlessness. We need to renew our allegiance to the king. We need to once again put our trust in the king. He is trustworthy. He does know what he's doing. He is a far better king than the other things we've been giving allegiance to and serving and chasing after. It's time to renew the kingship. Live for the true king. And those whose heads are hanging down this morning because you failed again, Don't you see, there is more to the picture than your failure. Your future doesn't depend on your performance. Your future rests on the grace of your king. He called you. He brought you into his family. And today, he claims you as his own. In spite of your failure... It's time to renew the kingship. Remember who you belong to. We're going to sing a song together now that helps us to consider what great things the Lord has done for us. We're going to sing together Amazing Grace.